Today on the Ward Preacher Podcast, the return of the king, cursing a tree, the enemies of Jesus tried to trap him, and a look at hypocrisy. I'm Brett Jensen, and this is the Ward Preacher Podcast. All right, getting into our Come Follow Me curriculum, we are looking at Matthew chapters 21 through 23, Mark 11, Luke 19 and 20, and John 12. Uh, We'll be focusing mostly on the Matthew chapters. Uh, There is a little bit of, uh, of harmony between the Gospels, but I encourage you to focus on the other passages as well as what we discuss here on the podcast today. Let's go ahead and start with the triumphal return of Jesus into Jerusalem. There's a prophecy in Zechariah in the Old Testament, and this is how it reads. Uh, Matthew references this prophecy. He says, uh, or Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So the prophecy is that Jesus would return to Jerusalem riding a donkey. So kind of knowing this prophecy, uh, uh, Jesus sends a couple of his disciples out to a nearby village, where he tells them, without having been there himself, mind you, that they will find a donkey and its foal tied to a tree. And he tells them, just take them. And if any man asks why, you can, in response, say, the Lord hath need of them, and everything will work out. And of course, it happens exactly as Jesus predicts. He rides the donkey into Jerusalem, surrounded by disciples, and attracting those who may have heard of the miraculous raising of Lazarus from the dead. Um, The people that surround him scatter branches from trees and clothing in the path where Jesus is riding, crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Of course, a stark contrast from what would happen a week later when all of his followers would be completely powerless against the chief priests and those who envied this attention and popularity and arranged for his killing. All right, so he comes into Jerusalem. He teaches. The next day he leaves. He goes back out to Bethany. um, and, uh, And then he comes back into the city. And on his way back, he's hungry, and he passes by a fig tree. And this is a part that's a little bit curious. Uh, he was He's hunger, and he sees this tree, this fig tree, just leaves, no figs. And he curses the tree. He says, let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. Immediately, the fig tree withers away, and his disciples see this, and they're kind of surprised. Look how quickly this, this tree has withered. And Jesus explains that if they have faith, that all things are possible. 
They can even move mountains. That doesn't really answer the question of why did he curse this tree? This seems a little harsh for Jesus. I think something to consider as we look at this account, that's um, in a couple of the Gospels, is that all things have a purpose. Everything has a purpose. Fig trees are supposed to produce figs. This is the culmination of their growth. They, they have leaves so that they can continue to grow and, you know, through photosynthesis, uh, gather energy and use it to grow. But ultimately, it's to produce figs. And if it's not producing figs, it's not doing what its purpose is. It's kind of missing the key element of why it's there. Um, people are also uh, given purpose. We are intended to become better until we fulfill our potential. And if we look at the account in Genesis of the creation, uh, there are all sorts of people that talk about, well, is it literal? And what do these days mean? And I think rather than getting hung up on that, if we instead think about the amount of effort that it takes for someone with all power to carefully forge a world in which his children will live, it describes that process for someone who had just raised Lazarus in the snap of his fingers, just by calling out Lazarus come forth. He took days to create the earth, whatever that means, a huge investment. He did it for a purpose. And those who ignore their purpose and chase after their own interests only are wasting the unimaginable suffering that was invested on their behalf by Jesus Christ personally. And at that day, when Jesus arrives, it's too late to start growing the figs. It's too late to start fulfilling our purpose. This is something that needs to happen soon. It needs to be prioritized. Uh, they don't grow overnight. Us fulfilling our potential. This could take some time for us to overcome our weaknesses and learn to value one another, to humble ourselves. It's, it's not going to happen immediately. And when Jesus finds us, the idea is that we hope he finds us doing what we are supposed to do, fulfilling our purpose. Those who are not are cursed. Okay. As Jesus um, returns to the city, a lot of his enemies are there. They aren't happy that Jesus is popular, and they have all sorts of ideas about how they can trap him uh, into doing things or saying something that will allow them to have power over him. One of the first traps that is set is a question where some of these people come to him and ask, by what authority doest thou these things? This is in Matthew chapter 21. Now, of course, if he says, my authority comes from God, 
then they can say, oh, he's taking God's name upon himself. He's, he's being blasphemous, and they can attack him for that. But if he says he has his own authority or the authority of Rome or, or men or anything else, well, then they can say, well, he doesn't have the authority of God. He doesn't speak for God. You should ignore him by his own admission. They know that it's a trap. He knows that it's a trap. And so instead of answering, he asks a similar trap question for them. He says, let me first ask you this. The baptism of John, was it of God? Was it of heaven or of men? And they realize that if they say of God, then he can say, well, why didn't you accept him then? And if they say of men, then they're in trouble with all the people who accepted John as a prophet. It was very clearly that Jesus essentially was saying, two can play this stupid game. Um, so they admit they can't answer. And so Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I think there's a lesson in here. Just because someone has what they claim is an honest question, it doesn't mean it's honest. There are sometimes people who pose questions to Jesus, to God, to his prophets that are not meant, uh, they aren't asked to get an answer. They're asked to attack the faith of those uh, that they're questioning. And I think um, when you have these bad faith questions, that can be tough because you don't want to appear to be like dismissive or hiding parts of your religion or combative. Um, at the same time, it's not good to answer these questions. And finding what these people are doing is a key uh, method for understanding how to handle it. Jesus was the perfect example for recognizing what was happening. Let's look at a couple more brief examples. Uh, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 17, it reads, Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth, neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Of course, they start this with this flattery. Oh, look at you. Always beware of people that are doing this. Uh, I mean, sometimes it can be legitimate but uh, that people are paying compliments, but sometimes people are trying to push you towards saying something. In this case, it still was a trap. If he says, yes, it's lawful to pay tribute to Caesar, then he's made kind of an enemy of a lot of the people that did not like the Romans. Also, they can say, oh, but I thought you didn't care about, you know, the, the person of men, that you only cared about God, not these worldly things. So they could trap him that way. Alternatively, if he says, no, it's not lawful, then they can immediately go tattletale on him to the Romans and say, hey, this guy Jesus is telling people not to pay taxes. He's stirring up trouble and you should deal with him. So it's a trap either way. 
and he knows that it's a trap. So he changes, he reframes the question. He uh, asks them to show him a penny. And then he asks, whose is this image and superscription? And they answer, Caesar's. And he says, render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. The perfect answer, because he didn't, he didn't say anything that was out of line according to what Rome would care about, and he didn't say any, he didn't offer support uh, uh, away from God. He encouraged people to render to God what was his. It was the perfect answer. Be aware of these yes or no false dilemmas that come from enemies of God who would, you know, like to frame things in a certain context. There might be a different way to frame them that helps us understand the truth better. All right, the Sadducees come. Uh, the Sadducees were famous for taking very literal just what was in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and if it wasn't in there, it wasn't real. None of this tradition stuff that the Pharisees had. So, for example, because it didn't talk about resurrection, it's because there is no resurrection. So they come to attack Jesus's belief about resurrection. Uh, and they say, they come up with this hypothetical situation about a woman who's married to a man. The man dies, and according to the law of Moses, uh, she then marries his brother, and he has seven brothers, and each of them die in turn, and last of all, the woman dies. And they say, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? For she was with seven. Jesus does not directly answer this hypothetical question. He tells them their situation was stupid. He says, you do err, not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. Um, so he just says that's ridiculous. And I think that's kind of an important thing. Then he, instead of dealing with their hypothetical, turns to the scriptures and attacks their belief that there's no resurrection. In the Torah, it certainly uh, has God at times explaining himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For example, as he's speaking to Moses, he identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jesus asks, how can God be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And of course, the Sadducees had no idea how to explain that, and uh, and they had to back off. Their hypothetical situation was totally irrelevant to what was going on. Um, it was uh, it was something Jesus could just ignore and get to the real core of what they were going. Jesus provides some really good examples of how to deal with people that attack your faith. Don't just accept the terms and the frames and the questions that they put around whatever issue they're bringing up. Their intentions are never to promote faith or help people to be good. Their intentions are to keep people from believing in God, to destroy faith. And when you understand that, 
uh, I think it protects your faith. It's easier to protect your faith. That doesn't mean you can't have legitimate questions, but you don't have to deal with these bad faith questions. Um, finally, he talks about hypocrisy. Uh, he describes the, the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew chapter 23, verse 24. He says, Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. So he gives several examples in which Pharisees were very devout in some things, and other examples where they tolerated great wickedness. This straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. They'll tolerate things that are ridiculous. Um, and he says, You're like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within are full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so ye outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Now a lot of people, when they're looking at modern examples of hypocrisy, look at this Pharisee example. People who are pious, who are conservative in their faith, and promote standards of righteousness that they themselves do not always uphold. They claim to promote the commandments, and yet they do not always keep them. Hypocrisy. Um, it's easy for conservative uh, members of, of, of the church or uh, faithful individuals to get defensive, but it's important to remember that this is accurate. This is accurate, and it's similar to what the Pharisees did. They tried to be very righteous in a few things, and they were not righteous in all things. Uh, we have a responsibility to live our religion, not just to preach it. Another example of modern hypocrisy, having talked about the, the Pharisee example, is the anti-judgment progressive group who pride themselves in love and tolerance, the epitome of Christ-like behavior, but condemn and berate and belittle and attack anyone that they view as intolerant or judgmental. They kind of miss the point that there is a hypocrisy that exists when a person condemns hypocrisy for almost everyone. Uh, if someone judges you, or someone for whom you care, or a group of people about whom you feel defensive, how do you treat that person? Is it loving? Is it tolerating? Is it Christ-like? I think the idea is that there's only one person who has truly avoided hypocrisy, and that was Jesus. Yet, he still calls on imperfect people to be leaders in his church. He asks people who need to repent to call others to repentance. He asks people who need to obey him better themselves to teach obedience. Avoiding hypocrisy means trying to live better in all parts of our faith, not to avoid principles that we don't live perfectly. Uh, he describes, going back to Matthew chapter 23, he, describes, he explains that the Pharisees have 
omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith, these ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Still be righteous. The righteous things that the Pharisees were doing were still righteous. They also needed to take care of their unrighteousness, and that's the key. Ultimately, all of us can stand to be less hypocritical and more like the one who was not a hypocrite, Jesus Christ. He lived everything he taught, and he wants his disciples to do the same. He knows what pitfalls and traps lurk around us and among us. Living his gospel helps us to see, understand, and avoid these traps. We fulfill our purpose when we follow his guidance. Ultimately, he will return. And when he does, we want to be prepared. Next week, we will look at Matthew chapter 24, Mark 12 and 13, and Luke 21, preparing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. We appreciate all the support for the Word Preacher podcast. And of course, as always, fight on. Thank you.